Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the podcast. This time guitarist Rory Stewart enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, as usual, I want to let you guys all know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you want to see full archived episodes, clips from the show, or you want to see when I'm going to be live next, you can check out the vibe chamber on youtube.com. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Rory Stewart, how you doing? Good. See you, Scotty. Good. I'm, I'm so happy to hear you're doing well. How you How you dealing with being stuck inside through the whole pandemic? Um. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm missing playing live with people a lot, and I'm missing doing tours and workshops. But um, in contrast to some of my friends, I know people that have just completely shut down in really? terms of productivity. Uh, but but for me, like I'm practicing many hours a day, composing. I mean, super super good creative period. Looking forward to all the musical things that it's almost like a chance for me to regroup and ready get ready for all the musical things I want to do when mm-hmm. this is over. Admittedly, it's a little bit funny to not have a, a deadline. In mm-hmm. other words, if you said the pandemic is going to be over in three months and fourteen days, like okay. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of got this amorphous thing, and I'm I'm certainly concerned about you know the whole ecosphere, especially the jazz side of things. The whole ecosphere. I'm just worried a little bit about, or let's say, concerned about what clubs will be there, what festivals will vanish. You know, this kind of mm-hmm. thing, because a lot of these things were not they were done by people that love the music, not people that were making a fortune. Absolutely. But, I so. Are you, are you usually a deadline guy when it comes to getting things done? No, I'm okay either way. It's just, it's just sort of funny to, it's just interesting thing to have all of these, like I'm just creating artificial deadlines for myself. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there, there's a, a large ensemble that I'm, it's a project that I haven't done in the past. Uh, and there's a lot of music I have to arrange for it. So, you know, I'm just creating little, okay, I got to get these things done by such and such a date. It's fine. Yeah, I've I found I'm I'm usually I need an exact day. I've I found a lot of the time. It depends on I mean a big thing it depends on how passionate I am about that particular thing honestly because yeah. I'm not I'm not good at faking passion for a project which is yeah. you know there's a there's a, a 50-50 split between whether or not that's a positive because it does enhance the things that I am passionate about. I, I I'm I really am passionate about but the things that I'm not I have to force myself but yeah. I I liked this refreshing period because it 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 allowed me to kind of rethink well what am I going to really be doing in the future and it forces it forced everyone to do that to really think well how am I going to adapt and when you're forced into that situation even though there isn't like a particular deadline to it just being in that situation in the first place is yeah. I mean it's something that I, we will probably you know, as humans not experience in our lifetime again, you know, the next time a giant pandemic comes around. So it's like, yeah. at least not make the best of it. Right. Not would. And I mean, I mean, let me say, I, when I talk about the positive side, I mean, imagine somebody in 1918, you know, in the middle of the Spanish flu and there are mm-hmm. millions of people dying, but they're not sick. So they're inside making the best of it. I mean, it's not, it hasn't been a glorious last six months in many respects for our country. Mm-hmm. and for the world but but you know you do all the positive things you can and then to a certain extent you've got time on your hands and you're stuck in a room well okay let's make the best of it you know 
Yeah. Well, let's yeah. go. Let's talk about pre-COVID. Let's talk about very pre-COVID, as I like to do with everyone who comes on the show. Uh, where was it? Where were you born? And and when did you start getting into music? Did you start on guitar? Uh, I was born in Manhattan, but I grew mm -hmm. up in Brooklyn. Um, what part of Brooklyn? Well, it's interesting. It, the neighborhood is called Fort Greene. Now, when you hear Fort Greene, you're thinking, oh, Fort Greene, this is the posh area, you know, um, where Spike Lee lives and all of those nice brownstones and all stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say that Fort, you know, Fort Greene was a different vibe when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. and, and there was actually a point where I hadn't been there for a long time. And my quartet, I had someone who was subbing on bass for my normal, you know, my regular basis. And we had a gig in Philadelphia. So I was going to give this guy a ride. So I drove and it turns out he lived like a few blocks from where I grew up. And it was hilarious because, I mean, the building he was in, I remember I used to walk by this. I mean, it literally had like smashed and boarded up windows. I mean, mm -hmm. it was them. There was nobody in there. And, and he was telling me, uh, this is a lo long time ago, so this number won't even make sense to you now. Like, multiply this by two. He was telling me, oh, it's, a, it's great. I, I get this apartment for like $1,700 a month. <laughs> so now I think about some place, like, you're paying like $3,000 a month. I mean, it was a long time ago. It's, Mm -hmm. So, so it, it was pretty comical to see, and nice in a lot of ways to see, to see what happened to Fort Greene. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of shrugging my shoulders because there's some places that have sort of got, gotten gentrified where the whole like soul of the place feels like it's been stripped out. Yeah. But, but let me say a lot of people living in the projects around me in Fort Greene, uh, I don't think they feel that bad that it's become nicer. I mean, mm -hmm. they might have trouble finding a place they can afford to rent now. But yeah. it wasn't, uh, I mean, it had an attitude, but it, it wasn't like a cultural mecca. Yeah, but I totally there, get it. There were things that were cool about it. You know, um, I lived a block away from the park and okay. all summer long, you know, we didn't have air conditioning or anything. Right? I would have the windows open and I would hear guys in the distance in the park, usually it'd be two or three guys on the Congo drums playing for hours and hours. So mm -hmm. you know when I'm showing people Wawanko in a rhythm class now, they don't realize like as a kid, like I heard I heard this a lot, you know? So mm -hmm. it, I mean it had it had its good points. Um, but anyway that's that's where I grew up. And musically the story, and I have to say I kind of remember this, is as a kid where I would get thread and string and make like a sort of spider's web thing in a room and mm -hmm. then tie pots and pans and all kinds of things and like hit on them. So I guess this is my, my uh, pre-music making thing. And then there was yeah. a, a little point um, that I even took drum lessons, uh, mm -hmm. started playing drums a little bit. There was a moment uh, I rented an electric bass probably for a month or two. I can't remember because I had some friends who were into Motown groups and were doing a concert and they got, and I played, I figured out and did that. But I mean, I'm not really a bass player. And what would happen to me is that there was a period when I was pretty young, sort of, I'd have to think if it's 12, 11, 12. Uh, yeah, maybe starting with 11. When I listened to jazz and by the way, of course, as, as you all know, in the U.S., it's very easy to be an 11 or 12-year-old and never hear jazz. I mean, Absolutely. never. Absolutely. Like, you know, 
So I was just lucky because I got exposed to it. And then I was in this crazy sort of community experimental school where they got people like, well, when I was there, Jackie Byard um, would come and give us lessons every week. This is wow. Jackie Byard who played with Charles Mingus and all, you know, and because of course in Brooklyn, guys in the neighborhood and he's, you know, people are willing to do that. By the way, I think Cedar Walton did it after I left that school. Really? Came every week. Um, I got interested in this stuff. I'm just rambling about the introduction. No, that's perfect. This is a very rambly type situation. That's I, I try to make it, you know, relax. Just say whatever, say whatever is, you know, the most natural. I mean, it's just a particular story that that is striking to me. It was striking at the time, but it's striking to me in hindsight also. You know, we were doing um, social studies projects. Um, or, you know, the topic that year was African-American history. So we were doing social studies projects. And as one of the projects, I heard Rasan Roland Kirk. Do you know Rasan? Right. So, so Rasan uh, was blind and he would play several saxophones and flutes and stuff at once. Mm-hmm. And um, he's not as, you don't hear people talk about him so much now as they did back then. I mean, he was like a force of nature. I mean, he was amazing. And he'd play at major festivals and clubs. You know, he played with Mingus and, you know, with lots of folks and had his own group. Anyway, I did this report. I, I found a bunch of magazine articles and interviews. So I did a report for my class. Well, the advantage of growing up in New York City and having a, a hip teacher who had these different connections is next thing you know, our whole seventh grade, yeah, our whole seventh grade class is going one afternoon to the Village Vanguard where Rasa Roland Kirk and this quartet played a set for us, just for us. And then he sat around and answer, answer our questions. All the kids in the class asking questions. Okay, so that's, it's, it's preposterous that, that we had opportunities like that. You know, that's and, something that if, like, if I had that you know, at the new school, which I do, but just even in a college, that's crazy. So for you know, pre-college yeah. is, is crazy, especially just in, 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 you know, in a place in Brooklyn. Yeah, and, and um, meanwhile, by the way, I don't want you to think I was completely like a jazz, uh, only listening to jazz. I mean, I was into James Brown and once a year he would come to my local theater in Brooklyn, which as I said, it was a pretty rough, funky neighborhood, but I would always be there and, and James Brown would play. That was great. I'd hear him was, he, was James Brown a New Yorker? Uh, no, I don't, well, I don't know of him ever living there. I mean, I think he was from Georgia way back, but, uh, but, you know, he just would go on these tours. Uh, you know, he would play at the Apollo. We would go to the Apollo Theater uh, and, and hear. The Apollo was crazy in those days because there would be a live band. Sometimes, like, comedians and vaudeville show, they would have, like, one or two movies. I mean, you'd go to the Apollo. You, you could stay there. There'd be, like, different stuff happening. I don't remember, five or six hours. I mean, they, before anything would repeat, you, you know. So, yeah. so, you know, and, and I got into Jimi Hendrix a lot. Um, so... You know, there were all of these things that I was into. Well, by the time I was in high school, I was listening more and more to jazz. I had a few LPs and only a few, like a, like a kid like I would have. Like I went and I bought um, the Coltrane record that's just called Coltrane. It's got the blue cover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, where he plays Soul Eyes, Out of This World, Tunji, Miles Mode. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I still remember all the tunes, you know. Uh, I had a Thelonious Monk record called Monk in Italy. It was live with Charlie Rouse. Um, and 
like a kid will do. I listen to these over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because I still have that LP, the same physical LP. Really? And, and it's really been interesting to the years because I totally love that recording. But of course, when I listen to it now and I think back, just basic things, you know, when I first listened to it, I had no idea certain things were composed, certain things were improvised. I, I didn't know anything about it, you know. I just knew, you know, Elvin started playing uh, on Out of This World, you know, the first track and Train came in and was like, wow. Do you, ever, mi do you ever miss that kind of, uh, you know, logical musical ignorance? Because I, I find that every once in a while that I, I miss when I was younger and I would hear something and I wasn't thinking, I was just experiencing what it sounded like. But now... And, I, and, it, and it is a different thing. It's not like I don't enjoy it now. It's just when I go back, I hear it differently. And sometimes I'm, I think it's cool. And sometimes I miss that vibe of just hearing something and just, just thinking about what you're hearing and not what they're doing to make it happen, you know? Yeah. I know what you mean. It's interesting. And, you know, it's possible. It's possible that I'm just speculating, but it's possible that right now and being in at a university that, that you're really, that your analytic mode is is ramped up. So, so it's possible you're not going to lose that completely, but it's possible there'll come a time years from now when, when you can, uh, I'm not sure about consciously, you know, where, where you can sort of analyze things more or less, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I know what you're talking about. I mean, it's there's a moment when, early on, I remember there's a moment where like, Oh, he's playing Mixolydian flat nine. You know, like you know, mm -hmm. it's like you're 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 computing and analyzing this stuff like crazy. And yeah. yeah. So so, but also that's interesting to me because I've been really lucky to. I know I'm jumping ahead for a second, but but to play all over the world, you know, for a lot of different kinds of audiences, and it's very interesting the how small the audience for jazz seems to be in the U.S. and a lot of it seems to have to do with them, with people just not getting exposed to the music, not ha having a chance to hear it. Uh, you know, there are a bunch of places in the world where there's like a state radio station and they play classical music and they play um, jazz and they play folk, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, it's not only whatever is top 10 on the AM radio thing or whatever. Yeah, the two, but, the two, ch the two channels for me when my when I was young, my mom always had in the car was there was the classical cha channel that was I think it was it was related to our local like PBS or not PBS what am I talking about NPR station. Uh -huh. yeah. It was we had the classical, uh, and later on it would go to like like I not not really bebop but just kind of like lighter jazz stuff. I guess like um, what's the record that Monin's off of? Uh, oh, the Blakey record. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 like that kind of that kind of jazz. Yeah. And then um, we listened to the hard rock channels called K Rock. Mm -hmm. And so I have such fond memories of those really specific radio channels that I feel like really heavily influenced how I I think of music. And I have a lot of nostalgia for the songs that I heard on those channels. So it's interesting that you had that similar experience with the particular genres that you got to hear. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I think even the way people, it's very funny what the relationship that people have with music, and I'm including non-musicians. And I'm sort of talking about this just for a moment because it's interesting to think about this because a lot of times people say, 
well, of course you don't like jazz. You need to study jazz. You don't understand it. And I think there's a, a value for a non-musician to study it. I mean, I, I think I could explain things about how improvisation works and what's happening in a song that would, that would add to someone's appreciation. But I have to say there was that, I still can think back on that moment as a kid. It was just this incredible vibe and energy and spirit, you know, that the Coltrane Quartet had I didn't know what the heck was going on. Nobody was telling me anything mm -hmm. and, and it just grabbed me. So there's also possibilities. Sometimes somebody hears something that's unfamiliar and it just resonates with them for some reason. Absolutely. So I, 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 not to belabor this, but, but I just to say that interesting thing. So now I'm in high school, I'm listening like crazy. I love this stuff. Um, I got a guitar. Actually, my mom got a guitar sort of as a present for me, like each of us half owned this little folk guitar. But of course, she told me every time she would pick it up to practice, I would want to get in and practice, you know, so I, I mean, I wasn't any serious guitarist, but I'm listening to jazz and it's like, whoa, I, I want to play this, you know, I want to become a part of this. Well, I had no idea how to study jazz. I didn't know anybody who could tell me, how, you know, my, my parents had a friend who was a Tin Pan Alley composer. Uh, you know, and he was like the closest to a musician. He was a composer. I, I, and I kind of asked him, well, you know, I want to learn jazz. What should I do? And, and he gave an answer, which, by the way, in hindsight, is a little funky. Uh, <laughs> he said, well, you know, you should study the classics first. You know, you should study classical guitar. It's just interesting because, for example, telling a kid they should study classical piano first, that's got a lot of merit because the, the touch and all this stuff, it really translates. You, you can sometimes tell somebody who's a great jazz pianist who has that classical thing because there's just certain things about touch that are hard to get without that background. But classical guitar and jazz guitar are like, you know, marimba and flute. I mean, I don't know. They're like, they're like really, really different. It's true that the fingerboard's the same, but, but they're such different creatures. Would you say it's kind of like... To me, that sounds kind of like the difference between someone who's, you know, like a s symphonic violinist versus like a, a Louisiana fiddle player. You know what I mean? It's the right. same instrument, but it's a totally different touch. Right. Or imagine, imagine, I'm trying to think related to you. Imagine if you had become infatuated with Elvin Jones when mm -hmm. you were 14 or 15 and someone said, well, you're doing the classics. So they gave you timpani lessons. I mean, it would apply some, right? You know, there's certain things that are similar, but it's it's pretty different. It's not, yeah. It's 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 the same family, but it's not the same sport, you know. Yeah. So so, I was again. It's a funny thing about being New York, and some things you don't fully appreciate at the time. I had as a classical guitar teacher. I'll mention it just in case any of your listeners are into this stuff. I got as a high school kid. I'm taking private lessons with Leonid Bolotin. Well, Leonid Bolotin was a Russian immigrant mm -hmm. who was a great violinist. He had a Stradivarius, I remember, and, and he had played first violin with a bunch of symphonies. And he decided he was interested in classical guitar and he decided to become a classical guitar teacher. He was never a great classical guitarist. I doubt he ever played a classical guitar concert in his life, but his musical awareness his, his musical consciousness being like a great violinist. Wow. I mean, he, you know, he, he could really raise the level of a classical guitarist performance. So he had many famous classical guitarists who came 
out of studying with him. Uh, but I didn't know all that. I mean, what I remember is the lessons were expensive. It cost $15 for an hour. And then there was a certain point where he told me, Sonny boy, he'd always call me Sonny boy. Sonny boy, I, I'm, I've got to raise the rate. It's $20 an hour. What well, year was I, this? Ancient history. <laughs> really? This is a long time ago. So, so of course, the, these figures, you know, you have to multiply a few times for inflation. But um, anyway, it was great. I loved studying classical guitar with him. And he was, there were many things that were wonderful about him. But let me say, he was kind of typical of, in one respect of many classical musicians then. If I mentioned something about jazz, it's like, <laughs> it was a touchy subject. I mean, he, he's not like, you know, it's, it's like you hear about, I mean, he wasn't this bad, but you hear about people in those days who were in conservatory programs and they're practicing classical music, but sometimes they'd be in a rehearsal room and they would be practicing a jazz thing and they would get kicked out, literally like kicked really? out. Really? Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of people from that generation talking about, the, you know, like someone very stern that would say, you know, you're not doing that here or whatever. So. The worst yeah. I've ever the worst I've ever had was noise complaint at the at, at school. I've never had someone say specifically what I was playing was right. a problem. Actually, it wasn't even me. I was I just walked in on a group of people playing. They're playing like this heavy blues. It sounded fantastic. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I don't hear that that often at the college. And someone came in. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a classical person, but that's the, it. Was not what they were playing. It was just the fact that it was like five million decibels. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it now. I mean, that's a different world because in any program, I mean, you could be practicing heavy metal or bluegrass. I mean, no, that's your thing. You're practicing. Who, who's to say? But it was just funny. It was a different attitude then. Well, he, he wasn't he wasn't like that at all. But I couldn't get, first of all, he probably didn't know anything about jazz. But also, he wasn't really open to jazz. By the way, a guitarist who I played with some years later, I played a one-week gig with him at this club called Fatusi's, Larry Coriel. Absolutely. My, yeah. I... I'm not totally up on, on, on my guitarist, but my friend is like, he's a guitarist, so he's obsessed. Yeah. But, but anyway, Larry Correll also studied with Leonid Volatine. And I'm sure really? that like me, he must have kept it pretty quiet that he had a career outside of classical music. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I had this wonderful classical guitar teacher for two and a half years. Meanwhile, I'm listening to jazz, listening to jazz, trying to figure out what the heck is going on with this. You know, I, I found a couple of instructional books. There weren't that many instructional books then, and they weren't very good. Uh, well, I mean, they had some virtues, but I never found a book that just laid it out like step by step. Here's here's there was no Suzuki for piano for guitar. Not, not, not that I ever saw. And by the way, I was happy for anything on any instrument, but I just, you know, so but I started figuring out things. So I learned how some I figured out. Um, if you saw a chord symbol, what notes were in that chord? And I started figuring out how to play the chords. And, and, and I could read notes some um, from classical music. So I could read rhythms and pitches. Okay, so now I'm going to jump forward. Now I go off to university to be a marine biologist. Really? And, yeah. My and, brother's big in, I mean, now he's, he's a pilot, but when we were younger, he was all into marine biology. So that's interesting to me. Uh-huh, yeah. Now, let me say that the... The summer I was done with high school, but right before I went to university, um, I was so into jazz that I went to Manny's, which you would know it's not there anymore, but it was like one of the main music stores on 48th Street in Manhattan. 
So there used to be one block in Manhattan that had all the music stores, you know, used saxophones in this one, uh, Sam Ash, all, all the different things. So did Manny's, Manny's close? That's not, it, it closed sort of recently within the, the last yeah. decade, maybe, right? I'm sure it's within the last decade. By the way, if you, if you walked into Manny's and you looked at the walls, they were covered with eight by 10 photos of people who had signed it and thanked Manny's for whatever. Like Jimi Hendrix used to go all there all the time and try out guitars, you know, so George. I think, ben- I, I think when I was a kid, cause I used to be obsessed with New York city. That's the reason I'm here is uh-huh. I was just, whenever I got a chance, if we would like drive past the city going somewhere, I'd always like beg my parents to go in. Um, and so when I was a little kid, I think I got to go to, to Manny's. I'm pretty sure if it, if it's, if I'm thinking of the right place, cause I remember it was, there was a, a big white sign on the building. Am I thinking of Manny's? If you went to one of those famous stores on 48th Street, almost invariably your folks must have taken you to Manny's. Yeah, I remember it being near Times Square, so that's probably it. But I, I, it was a really cool place, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, very, very cool. So I went there, and uh, one of the folks there, I explained that I wanted to get an electric guitar and an amp. I, I'm just telling this in case any guitars was, was very funny. This guy got me... It was called the Sun. It, it was as big as a Marshall stack. Uh, your first, your first guitar amp was the size right. of a Marshall stack. Right, and and something that no one's heard of anymore. Ovation makes acoustic guitars. People don't know about. Well, they tried to make an electric guitar called the Breadwinner. It, it was this really not very good solid body guitar. So I had this really bizarre combination. The only reason I'm mentioning that is that the amp was big. So like I'm like, you know, I'd be wheeling this amp down the. The, the street. So, anyways, was it, did I, it at least sound good? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I mean, just way I mean, too much. You could get something like this big that was sound like it, but it was fine. It was good. Um, so, so I showed, but maybe it was good that I have a big amp because I showed up at my dormitory, you know, first day I go out to university. Um, and one of the other people on my dorm floor, I think, saw me moving this huge amp. He said, oh, you play, what do you play, bass guitar? I said, yeah, guitarist. He said, oh, I'm a drummer. So I, I became friends with this guy on my floor of my dorm. And within the first week I was at school, he said, because we found out each of us were interested in funk and you know, different things, but also in jazz. And, and, he, and he said, hey, you should come and audition for the Stanford Studio Band. Mm-hmm. So there was this like studio band. It wasn't even for credit, but people played there, right? So... So he said this, now I was interested, right? Cause I want to learn how to play jazz and all this. He said, it's like a jazz band, you know? But of course I was a little bit intimidated. I mean, I never played with anyone before in the situation, right? Mm-hmm. And I still remember wheeling my amplifier down, down the street cause the place that the rehearsal was was a ways away, you know? And I got to this rehearsal and there was another guitarist and this was really intimidating. Yeah. So they had these charts and there was music stand and they, and they put the chart up and I was, I was doing pretty well. Like I was sticking, I wasn't getting lost in the chart. You know, I could play the chords and all this stuff. And in one of the charts, there was a guitar solo. And I think the director maybe pointed to the other guitarist and the other guitarist pointed to me and gave me the solo. So I took this little solo. I, I hate to know what it sounded like, but anyway, I got through it. I didn't get lost. You know? and, and so for the entire rehearsal, every time there was a chance for this guitar to kind of be in the spotlight, the other guitarist would def- defer to me, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So finally, it was the last tune in the rehearsal. This, this is a lot of years ago, and I can remember this all in great detail, as you can tell. Last yeah. rehearsal, well, I happen to remember the tune was Round Midnight, and they didn't have a guitar chart. Well, I didn't know Round Midnight, so the other guitarists did know it. So I just laid out on that one, and the other guitarists played. And then the other guitarists took a solo, and like, he, like my whole world was rocked. So his name is Tuck Andrus. He's famous now. He plays with Tuck and Patty. And, you know, I had heard George Benson on records. I think I had heard some West Montgomery, John McLaughlin, you know, so I had heard some great guitarists. But this is this guy who's like maybe a couple years older than me sitting across the thing from me and he's playing at that level. I mean, he, he you know, and by the way, you would think, okay, well, Rory's exaggerating this for the years. Well, I have some cassettes of him from that first year I was at university. You know, he was already like stunningly great. So, so this guy played that way. And I was sort of like, oh my God. And, and of course, right away, there's a lot of stuff I realized. So the typical thing, right? This guy's like I'm so much better than me. Of course, he's going to take all the solos and show up this, this guy who doesn't, can hardly play who shows up there. But this is such a, an amazingly like a loving, generous, I mean, this guy's like, I don't, I don't mean saint on earth or something, but, th but this guy is like a very exceptional person. So he immediately completely understood the whole situation and gave me all the souls, did all these things to, to make me feel more confident and you know, spread my wings there and stuff. So this is, you know, he's my best friend. I mean, one of my best friends in my whole life, still one of my best friends. Um, and also an incredible inspiration. Because to this day, I mean, he's one of the greatest guitarists on the earth. I mean, he's gotten better and better through the years. But he was pretty amazing already as a student there. I appreciate those, that kind of people so much that are really, really good at something. And they don't try to shove it in your face. They don't try to show you up, especially when they know that you're, you know, you're less experienced. I, th th those are the people I feel really make the difference in, in terms of people's lives and careers more so than the the musicians especially who are like, no, I have to show you that I'm great. And that's how you have to scare you almost into being good. It's the people that really, they don't, you know, they're not going to baby you, but they're also going to, you know, say, here's your chance to show what you have because I don't, I don't need to right now. Those are the, those are the, like the, the real, they're, yeah. they're the best. They're the absolute best. That's all I could really say. By the way, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed a lot of times the most amazing musicians, I mean, people who are really like on this incredible level, they're the ones who are like that a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot of times those folks are very humble and, you know, open and it, it's, it's, it's more the people who are, you know, clawing and they're trying to push the other people down. Those are the people that are a little more problematic. You know what I found is it's really, it's, it's the people who are not just great at something, but it's the thing that they're doing is really hip. It's not just... Because there's a difference between being really great and doing something that's unique, you know? And I think the people who are really technically skilled and doing something that's really unique and interesting, those are the nice people. Those are the coolest people because they know they're not trying to sound like anybody. They're not, they don't care about showing off their chops because they're just doing their thing. They're just good. They have their own style. And it's, I think it's usually the people that I've had experiences with or, you know, heard things about. It's the people that are really good or, you know, you know, a lot of the times they're not very good, but it's people who are really good, but they're just kind of like, you know, 
like wonder bread, just kind of like, you know, like take it or leave it. Especially there are some drummers. I'm not going to say, but there are some drummers who are famously known who, in my opinion, are kind of just, you know, doing like the regular, like you go see them and you're like, wow, that's a great drummer. But it's not like seeing someone like Steve Gadd or, you know, like Tony Williams, where you're just like freaking blown away by the fact that like just them being themselves. Yeah. And I realize it's, it's also, of course, it's a personality thing. They're a tough love kind of people. I mean, Joe Jones throwing the symbol at Charlie Parker's feet was pretty tough love. I mean, he, <laughs> he wasn't like, yeah, that's you're playing the wrong notes, but I know you can get it, man. I mean, so, so they're different personalities. Yeah. So, so lucky for me, this is the first week I'm at university, mind you. The first week it, this, this happens. So now, unlike a different kind of guitarist that would have told the director, hey, dude, I'm the guitarist, get this other guy out. He like super welcoming. So, so I played for the whole year in this ensemble with him to play next to this guy. Wow. I mean, you, like, that's how you're supposed to do it. And of course, I gave him more solos later on because I wanted to hear him play. So now there was this interesting shakeup in my life, right? Because I was going to be a marine biologist. But this music thing was, I don't know, intoxicating. I mean, and it was so, amazing. And at what point in college was it that you really started having doubts about your, well, your decision? This, uh, I mean, when I met Chuck, it was the first week of freshman year. So it was immediate. It was as soon as that first week happened, that's when it, like the seed was kind of planted. Right. So, so I mean, I, it wasn't that it was a dilemma yet. It's just, I'm, I'm like getting more and more into music. And meanwhile, I'm taking calculus classes, you know, I'm doing all this other stuff, right? And, and the other stuff was fine. I had some great teachers and stuff, but um, the other thing is, this isn't unique to music. You know, there are many things if you wanted to become, I don't know, a cross country ski champion or something. I mean, any, any kind of skill, um, a tap dancer, any kind of skill, it, you know, if you're on the right course and you have some talent, the initial gains are really dramatic. Mm -hmm. Of course, once you get to a certain level, it takes more and more work. E each incremental thing after that takes more and more work. But I was in that first year. And um, by the way, in a lot of ways, I considered Tuck kind of my teacher, but uh, I only took one lesson from him at, in those years. And he was giving our lessons, but I, it was, I was a little tight on money. And I, and I asked him, like, could we do 45 minutes? <laughs> he said, sure. Well, six hours later, I mean, he, he just gave it to me. We just did a step. But, you know, afterwards, he told me, like, wow, you were like a sponge because there's all this stuff that I was kind of figuring out on my own. To give you a silly example, I started explaining to him about if you took a major scale, but you took the interval starting from each different note of the major scale, you had a different interval structure. And he said, yeah, those are called the modes. The modes, and yeah. I said, you mean someone else has discovered those? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, by the end of that year, it was, it was interesting because I was like, you know, it was marine biology, but man, this music thing. So I decided that it didn't make sense to do marine biology half-heartedly. And I wanted to really explore the music more. So, I, you know, that university, I had been at Stanford in California. And I decided I'm just going to go someplace else and do music. 
And it was a little bit arbitrary. Um, and the other thing is I was a little bit, a little bit chicken. See, I should have, the, the logical thing would be just leave university and just do music. But I, I had heard about Boulder, Colorado, and I thought, all right, I easily get accepted to transfer there. I could take a bunch of biology classes and, and stuff, but it won't be very demanding. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to diss anyone who loves, but I, you know, I knew it would be fine. And, 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 um, and, but I'll really focus on music and let me do this for a year and see how it goes. Uh, so, so I was still taking some classes, but I mean, all my energy was, was going into music. And at the end of one year, I was like, I mean, by the end of one year, I'm like playing with groups. I mean, things were looking up, you know? And I thought, let me do this for one more year. And at the end of this, the second year, you know, I was still on that curve where I'm getting like better and better really fast. Now I'm playing with some of the better people in Colorado. I mean, it was, I, I, I was very fortunate. And, you know, if you get a chance to play with some better people, they raise your, you know, your level. I mean, all these things were feeding into improving. It was really exciting. The only thing is I was thinking like, I don't think I can make a living at this. You know, it's kind of a crazy thing to do. Um, and, I'm trying to think ex the exact chronology, but I, but I remember at the end of the second year, I, I thought if I can't make enough money this summer, you know, I, I can't keep going to debt and stuff. So absolutely. So, so there was a wonderful professor at the music department. I had never been a music major there. I was taking biology classes, but at University of Colorado, <clears throat> his name was Wayne Scott. And somehow I befriended him and I was doing things like I was writing big band charts and I would bring them to him. And just he, in your spare time? Yeah, just in my spare time. And he would look at things and give me really helpful feedback. And through him, I was able to take a couple of upper division classes. So I took an orchestration class and wrote something that got read by the symphony. I, let me say how much I appreciate this because I haven't gotten the symphony to read through anything I've written since, you know. So, yeah. so there's a lot of opportunities like this. So this guy, it was so sweet of him. He didn't have any reason to do this, but he was just such a good guy. Someone contacted him about a musical theater, like a musical show. Mm -hmm. And this was someone who had written a musical, but needed it orchestrated. Well, the, the person who didn't know very much about music, I have to tell you. Uh, so some, it was things like whistling tunes into a cassette and he and needed this to be written for a full like 17 piece, you know, um, show uh, orchestra and so forth. And so Wayne Scott contacted me and said, hey, you know, this guy, I know you'd be good at this. Or are you interested in doing this? And then when I found out what it paid, wow, like I was able to save up a lot of money. I mean, I was working like crazy. Someplace I still have copies, a huge stack of, of music that I, you know, that I orchestrated. And it was actually doing a little bit more than orchestration. I didn't know anything about harmony or anything. So I was, you know, but anyway, uh, and then around that time I played with, now it's getting to people that some people might have heard of. I, I got into Jerry Grinelli's band. Uh, he came to Colorado and he had the house band at the Blue Note, uh, which had just opened there. So, and, and I was playing also with some really great people who are probably largely forgotten to folks who weren't local to Colorado. But um, 
man, Billy Tolls, a, a, a fantastic tenor saxophone player who was almost Dexter Gordon generation, uh, mm. almost that old and came from Seattle like Dexter. And, you know, playing in his group, wow, it was rocking. You know, this guy, like big, soulful sound and, you know, cool arrangements on tunes. So that was good. I played with a guy who's still a great friend of mine, a wonderful guy, Joe Keel, a pianist. And he led this group called the Action Orchestra. And it was a funny combination. Some of, like one of the guys was bro a brother of the keyboard player in Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, so it was sort of an interesting combination, sort of folk, uh, probably I would call it a funk band, but it had much more sophisticated harmony and jazz stuff. And we would, when we play instrumentals, we might play, you know, a jazz tune. Um, so I was playing with all those groups. And as you can imagine, now after one year in California at university, two years in Colorado, now I'm playing music full time. I've got money saved up from doing this show. I just thought, okay, I'm going for it. Uh, and, so, and so that's when you uh, went to music school. Did you did you go to oh, music school? Oh no, that's when I became a full time musician. Oh, I thought I okay. I I was wondering if you had ended up sure. transferring and going. And this is you said you're the second year of your college in Colorado. No, I, I had gone after my third year of college. Gotcha. Uh, so, so the fourth year, uh, if I'm remembering this right. I think there was still a year, I, I have to look back. You know, I'm pretty sure there was still a year when I was in Colorado, I just wasn't going to school and I was just playing music full time. If I think about this for a minute, maybe it was two or three, you know, it might've been a couple of years. Um, I can keep rambling on. I, 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 when you ask about music school, I've told you about Takandris. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, around this time I had become much more appreciative, much more aware of all the great jazz folks, including living ones and, and the you know legends who weren't around. Um, and I remember I read an interview with George Benson. Now I had seen George Benson live before Breezen. So George Benson was a, a phenomenon on the guitar. He was incredible. People for many years kind of didn't know this because they knew the more pop side of George Benson. And, mm -hmm. and let me say that, I mean, there was a time when I used to give guitar lessons at new school and guitarists would ask me, well, who are good, you know, who's some people you like? And I mentioned George Benson and they would kind of look at me like, George Benson? They yeah. vibe you a little bit? Yeah, because, they, because they just had heard him singing this masquerade. You know, they didn't know he could play. Well, that's one cool thing that's happened with YouTube because all these obscure clips are, so now most people, if they spend any time say like, oh my God, George Benson was incredible. So, um, so I read this interview with George Benson in a, in a little kind of obscure ma jazz magazine called Cadence. Mm -hmm. And the, the interviewer and George Benson were kind of getting into it because at this time, George was starting to do more commercial kind of things. And you could tell the interviewer is like pushing back on it. You know, the interview is like a hardcore music, you know, hardcore jazz guy. Yeah. So, so George says to him, said, I don't play guitar to show people I can play. I play guitar, whatever he said, to sell records or whatever it is. He said some sort of thing like that, but then he said, you know, people like you, you don't even know, you've never even heard of the best musicians out there. So Oof. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? He said, George Benson. And then the next thing was like an exact quote. And I remember it's like, 
the greatest living guitarist that I know is a guy named Dave Kramer, who lives on the wrong side of the railroad tracks in Oakland, California, and you've never heard of him. And the interviewer said, wow, you're right. So, so George says, you see, the, the, just because someone's great, I mean, it's a whole different thing being successful versus being great. I've heard some stuff like that about, um, you know, people always, the first thing when they talk about like making fun of like smooth jazz, you know, it's like, oh, you sound like Kenny G. I've heard Kenny G play some stuff that's like, you would never think it would come out of his saxophone. Really? Yeah, I, 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 I've not heard that, but I take your word for it. I've heard, um, I for, I can't remember what record, I, but Heim Cotton in one of my piano classes played this record that Kenny G was on. And he was like, would you, he had us guess. He's like, who, who do you think this is? And it was Kenny G and we were blown away. And he was making the point. He's like, just because you know someone from something yeah. and you think that, oh, they're just this stale, you know, pop musician, which I think a lot of, there's kind of an arrogance a lot of the time with people who like more niche genres to think that just because someone who does is doing something successful, that they're automatically lesser. And I think a lot yeah. of the times, I mean, of course there's, there's times when it's, it's valid, but I think a lot of the times it comes from people feeling invalid about what they're doing and they need some way to feel superior so they say oh they're just not as good that's why yeah. but there are there are some people who are really like that i mean steve gadd plays one of the i know i, I mentioned steve gadd in like every show and i think it's the second time i talked to him steve yeah. gadd plays you know 50 ways to leave your lover amazing drum beat simple track then he goes and he plays the leprechaun with Chikoria. You know, it's it's it, you, it's it's amazing, and those are the kind of people that I really like—the people that you're shocked to hear, you know, or like, um, like where I, I have an example that people don't know that much. I don't know. I never hear anyone among my students talk about Dave Sanborn, the saxophone player. And, I know the name, but Dave, I don't know his music very well. Yeah, I mean, Dave Sanborn is thought of as—I don't know. People kind of think of him as smooth jazz or whatever. He's played on a lot of uh, pop records. You know, he has a particular like sound and all this stuff. Well, I heard him way back playing with Victor Lewis, the drummer Victor Lewis, Victor's tune, Seventh Avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's a tune that's in seven, although the bridge goes between four and seven. And wow, David Sanborn played his ass off on this. And then I read that he was taking lessons with George Coleman, with the saxophone player, George Coleman. Yeah. And, and I thought like, wow, that's interesting because more, you know, I'm sure Dave Sanborn was making more money with his popular things than George Coleman, but he understood. I gotta, I gotta check out what George is doing. You know. Do you know um, the singer Charlie Puth? I feel like I might have heard the name, but I don't know. No, I don't really know. He writes like, like huge pop hits. You know, very. You know, if you you hear him on the radio all the time on just like you know Hot One Hundred, and he is absolutely phenomenal. And he, he, like, there are videos of him playing Donna Lee and singing along when he's playing the piano. Like, like that's fast. And he's singing it. It's, it's beautiful. And that's cool. That's just so cool to me. People who are, who have found that way to say, you know, yes, I'm really good at this, but I'm also, you know, I know that, you know, your average person who puts on the radio doesn't want to hear, you know, freaking giant steps at 270 beats per minute, you know, but I can do it if you need it. Yeah. Um, so wait, so now it so, so just just to finish about Dave Kramer, about the guy that George is talking about, because mm -hmm. it sounds like that's the whole story, but actually there's a, a coda to it, which is I'm thinking, huh, the greatest guitarist George Benson's ever heard, huh, that would be interesting to take lessons with this guy. 
right? So I had, by the way, gone and taken one lesson with Joe Pass. Uh, mm -hmm. I was visiting my sister in Los Angeles. I looked in the in the phone book, and there was Joe Pass. I called him up. Anyway, that's a whole story. And it's like, <laughs> well, I took one lesson. But but the thing with the Joe Pass lesson was, this will sound like I'm an ego mega, but I, I don't mean. I mean, Joe Pass was a lot better at what he was doing than I was. But I I could I knew everything he almost everything he did. And by mm -hmm. the way, he says to me, "Well, why are you taking a lesson with me?" I said, well, because you're so great at this stuff. Said, yeah, but you know, you, you know the stuff. Well, so, but I thought somebody that George Benson says is the greatest he's ever heard probably knows some other stuff that the rest of us don't know, right? Yeah. But Oakland, California, huh? Tuck Anders lives in the Bay Area. I wonder if Tuck's ever heard of this guy. So of course I call up Tuck. He said, yeah, this guy's amazing. I just started studying with him. You know, you should come out here and study with him. Small so, world. So, Wow, so he, so he gave me uh, Dave Kramer's um, phone number and I called up Dave and, and you know, I said like, I live, I mean, I live the other side of the world, but um, you know, can I come out there for a week and study? So he said, sure. So I went out and for one week, like every day, some days I think I might've taken two lessons in the same day. I mean, every day I would take lessons with him and, and that's, pretty much the extent of all of that music study, one week with Dave Kramer, and this guy was so generous because he gave me a stack of... <laughs> you got him? I don't know if you can see this. This is a loosely binder. These are pages, sheets that Dave Kramer gave me. So... Yeah, I see behind you, you have, a, you have so, quite so, a collection of, of papers behind you. I mean, he so he gave me all of these sheets that he had spent 10 years coming up with this, this entire vocabulary. I mean, this was the opposite experience of Joe, from Joe Pass. If you went and played with Dave, you didn't recognize a single thing he played and it was beautiful. I yeah. mean, I'm saying like he didn't play a single chord I'd ever, you know, it was- It, it was, was all like, fresh. Yeah, and he, he studied a lot of really advanced stuff uh, that he figured out on himself, you know, 12 tone stuff, all kinds of interesting things. Um, so he gave me, you know, he generously let me photocopy all this stuff. I mean, wow, this guy's like also super amazing. And just to tell you about Dave, is it too much, uh, on him? Uh, no, just, absolutely not. So I'm trying to understand. I mean, the first time I go to a lesson, this guy's doing things. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, well, I, I graduated, I kind of, maybe partly from Tuck and partly from Dave himself, I kind of found out a story. As Dave explained it, I think he was pretty young, maybe he was 18 or 19, and he had a really bad breakup with a girlfriend, like, like devastating. Mm -hmm. And he needed something to, you know, some direction. And he was very, he was already playing guitar, he's very interested in guitar. So he, his sister had a house I hope I'm getting all the details right. Sister at his house and he asked his sister, could I stay in your house? Could I stay in one room of your house? So for 10 years, this guy practiced. As he described, and he was, when I met him, it was after this 10 years. Mm -hmm. And he, he was able to make fun of himself. So he was describing, you know, like he would have an, he was not taking very good care of himself. He's like smoking cigarettes. So he had an ashtray. So after a certain point, you know, the ashtray is piled you know, and, and he's, he wouldn't spend time doing the thing, basic things. Like I think he would buy frozen TV dinners 
So there'd be like a half-eaten TV dinner sitting someplace. He wasn't like clean up. And then sometimes the, the story I remember is he said he, he would wear these jeans and these cowboy boots and he would practice all day long. And, you know, finally he would fall asleep on his couch and then he'd wake up and he'd start practicing again. He said once in a while he'd look and he realized he hadn't taken off the cowboy boots for three weeks. Whoa. So, you know, so this guy was deep into it. So, you know, he when this 10 years was up, he took some students. And so one guy took, he's actually a very wonderful guitar player, but you don't hear about him so much now. Barry Finnerty, he lives in the- I don't know that area. name. So, so Barry Finnerty was one of his students and uh, Barry told George Benson, you know, and Barry, Barry, Barry like, wasn't like shut up, up in a room and Barry was playing with the jazz crusaders, you know, with different people. And Barry told, told George Benson, and George Benson flew out to hear Dave. And, and that's why George said, this is the greatest living guitarist I know of. And George was so stunned by Dave that he told Dave he wanted to be his manager, which by the way is preposterous. George wasn't into managing people. He just thought like, this guy, people have to hear him. Mm-hmm. So Dave you know, was very laid back and I said, yeah, okay. No, except I'm not doing it because it was like <clears throat> very deep. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so George told him, tell me who you want to play with. I can get you a gig with anybody in the world. Tell me, I'll get you a gig with him. Well, you have to understand that Dave wasn't really going out and buying all the latest records and stuff. So Dave liked the groups with Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, Ron Carter. Dave said, no, I'll play with Miles. George said, no problem. George called up Miles. Miles flew Dave out from his little place in Oakland, flew him out to New York City. Well, the problem was that Miles was doing his constantly changing thing and Dave didn't know about it. So by the time Dave got out there, Miles was in the on the corner period. So he's playing one chord funk fans. <laughs> so Dave told me he's, he, I think he played for a couple of days. Maybe there's even a little bit of him on, on the corner, but you can't really hear what the stuff that made him distinctive. And, and then he said, he came up, went up to Miles, he said, Miles, you know, I don't really like New York that much. And, you know, your music's boring me. So I think I'm going to leave. See, now, now knowing what I know about Miles Davis, he seems like the last person you would want to do that to. Right. So, so, you know, and, and I mean, I don't, it wasn't that Dave, it's funny to say this, it wasn't that Dave had some big ego or something. Dave was into some like really advanced harmonic stuff. And these one chord vamps, which of course you and I, I mean, I'm, I love all that. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. I'm doing one for a, a class right now. That's basically just a one chord vamp. Yeah, I love this. I mean, remember I used to go and see James Brown in my neighborhood theater, but, but you know, but Dave had gotten into this really deep thing harmonically like if he had caught miles when you know Wayne Shorter was there and they were playing ESP and Mascalero and Nefertiti I mean Dave would have been fine with it he would have put, put I'm I'm speculating but he would have put some harmonic thing on top of this that would have opened people's eyes even beyond maybe what the people in the group were doing I mean he was incredible but mm-hmm. um, but you know the one chord vamp thing he was just being honest. He didn't really like New York. He didn't like, so of course he flew back to Oakland. Now George Benson 
what's George going to do? I mean, yeah. I mean, George realizes, okay, I can't manage this guy. I mean, if, if you're going to go to Miles and tell him to his face, his music is boring you. Okay. <laughs> I, I give up, you know, anyway. So, uh, I lived in Colorado. I played a bunch. I came out to New York at one point. Uh, it was amazingly difficult. Um, here's something that, that one doesn't know if one goes to a jazz school. In those days, there, I mean, there was North Texas State, which had a bunch of big band people, and there was Berkeley College of Music. Now I'm going to say something that isn't fair about Berkeley. <laughs> I love it, that kind it, of stuff. In, in hindsight, I've met lots of people who went to Berkeley who were fantastic musicians. The problem I had is the people who went to Berkeley and ended up back playing in Colorado weren't the people who, they weren't the whoever, uh, you know, the, 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 the elite. Right, right. So, so I sort of thought, man, this, I never want to go there. I don't want to play like these guys do, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, coming to New York, I mean, you, when you're at a school, immediately you've got however many people, you know, 40 or 50, however many people you make friends with and you're playing with, you've got this whole network. Well, they quickly, if you're new school, take your example, I'm sure they've got a bunch of friends at Manhattan School of Music and NYU and all. So, so boom, you got this whole network. And if yeah. you play really well, and if you have a particular kind of thing you'd like to do, wow, you got this like ready-made network. Well, it wasn't like that. I mean, when I came to New York, it was impossibly difficult to find an affordable apartment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was a little bit naive because if somebody who was a really good musician you had never heard of showed up in Colorado and came to one of your gigs and said, hey, I just came from wherever. Can I sit in? You're like, yeah, come on. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and like they want you want to meet new people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, come to New York. Uh, Hi, I'm, I'm Rory. I just came from Colorado to play guitar. Yeah. Get, Get the hell out. <laughs> right. So so it wasn't quite so so welcoming. So I stayed. Uh, I stayed for a few months and wow, this wasn't happening. So I went back to, to Colorado. So wait, did you have an apartment there for those, those three months or were you just staying with yeah, like, people? I got you know? an apartment for a few months. It was pretty dreadful. Uh, I don't think you can even do that anymore. I don't think you can get apartments for less than a year in the city anymore. Yeah. Well, I had a friend, a pianist who came and he stayed in the apartment and got someone else to, you know, to, to take half the apartment. Oh, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. Anyway, um, the only thing that I want to mention, I mean, I did get to hear a lot of music, you know, but the thing that was interesting was um, I had a friend who knew I was coming to New York and had given me phone numbers for a few different organ players. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in those days, there were a bunch of organ players and they would always have a guitarist in their group. So this seemed like a ready fit. And I remember I called up, I think one of them was, maybe it was Jimmy McGriff. And you know, hi, I'm Rory Stewart. I'm a guitarist. I just came to New York. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the other one was Brother Jack McDuff. And, and it was the same thing, you know, okay. So I got nowhere with it. So I go back to Colorado. And suddenly I'm the big fish in Little Pond again. So I'm getting all these gigs. Actually, it was better than ever. Wow, it was fantastic. All this stuff's happening. And to cut things short, I'll just mention one morning I get this phone call. And it turns out it's Brother Jack McDuff. And I have no idea to this day how he figured out my Colorado phone number. I mean, 
this was before cell phones, right? Oh so, yeah, because you you called him while you were at your apartment in the city. Yeah, and this was and this was quite a while later. I mean, this was I can't remember. Was it a might have been a year later? And suddenly this guy calls me up, and so there's this whole story. It's too long to tell you right now. And I ended up racing to Gary, Indiana, and going on the road with Brother Jack McDuff. And what year is this? Ooh, I was only three years old at the time. It was, uh, it was uh, 1978. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, at a certain point, there's, there's lots more stories along those lines. Stuff, but at a certain point, I decided to give New York a try one more time. Now I was really more prepared in many respects. And it took some work, but I hung in there and then things started going great for me in New York. And uh, this is before your time, but I had a quartet that got a certain amount of attention in the, through the 80s. Uh, it was really, really amazing. The drummer was Keith Copeland. If you haven't checked out Keith Copeland. I have. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, and that was beautiful. That was a really great quartet. It, by the way, the, the pianist you probably know from New School was Armand Denalian. Absolutely. Was, yeah, and, and the ba bass player, Calvin Hill, who played with McCoy Tyner and Sonny Fortune and Max Roach, and he's still around, he still performs. I played with him once in a while. He was the bass player for most of the time, but then there was a little while where Anthony Cox, uh, a bass player who moved back to Minneapolis, but he was, Anthony was really on the rise, you know, playing with everybody, and and, uh, and he was also great. He played that group. And how and often was that quartet playing in the city, like on a weekly basis? So what was interesting was I really put a lot of value on continuity you know, having the same group play together. Because I noticed all the groups I really loved, and this is a problem in 2020, I have to say, but all the groups I really loved, you know, you look back, you can find on online, Coltrane Quartet's performance schedule, or Art Blakey's performance schedule, or Miles Davis. I mean, th these amazing groups, they weren't just getting together once every few months for one night, you know, they were like playing a lot. So I couldn't get that frequency of performance but I would do everything possible to make sure that the same group of people, you know, so we had continuity. Uh, I mean, I got a week at Fat Tuesdays, but a lot of times it was just one night at 7th Avenue South. You know, the different clubs that aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. It would be one night, maybe every few weeks. And, uh, and, and I can say something that's interesting is that through the years, so, so jumping many, many years later, I had a group with Ari Honig, Matt Penman and Mark Shin. Uh, sometimes different bass player playing it. Matt Penman couldn't do it all the time. Chris Tordini, who used to be a student of mine, did it. Uh, a bunch of great bass players played with that group. But um, we would play at another club that's, uh, that's not there anymore. Um, Cornelius Street Cafe. Uh, I know the name, yeah. Yeah. And this has been sort of a pattern in my life. Like I, I would get great reviews for records, you know, in Downbeat and Jazz Times and Coda and Cadence, all these places. And then they would never have, forget about a cover on, on, on Downbeat, I'd never even have an article. So, so the perception was, you know, there were some other people who were perception wise, well, they obviously were much bigger stars. And I'm not disputing that, but at least the places I played, like in New York, if I played at Cornelius Street, like, the shows were sold out. I mean, there would be like lines of people down the street. In fact, they told me the two most 
popular people at Cornelius Street, it was me and the saxophone player, George Garzon. And, and George Garzon and I sometimes played together. So as you can imagine, those were pretty- close. Lines down the street. Yeah. So often it's, you know, and it was the same thing back in that group with Keith Copeland. Like we had followers that totally loved it. We didn't get so much media attention. I mean, we got great reviews when we put out a record, but we got to play for very appreciative audiences and make, you know, make music that, that still holds up for me. So I'm happy about that. And you, and you mentioned that Armin was in the band and, you know, he's also an instructor at the new school. When was it that you, you first started teaching there? <laughs> the only thing, this is like a cliche of mine, but the only thing I was sure of in the late eighties, there were many, because I had many different interests. You know, I, this is, gets into a different conversation, it might be too long, but um, you know, I had friends where they felt the only thing that's important is to be a full-time musician, do music no matter what. Uh, and, in the, and in the case of those who were fortunate, like this guy I met when he was 21 years old, Wynton Marsalis, I mean, okay, he easily just did music. But, um, but I knew people who were playing wedding gigs and you know, who were doing things, and it's nothing against those gigs, but they were playing with people. It, it, it wasn't really, the level that they should have been at. And by the way, I did this for a year. A, a jazz guitar friend of mine at the last minute was moving out of the city and he said, oh man, I'm in trouble where can you take over my band? I said, take over your band? So it was a wedding band. So for one year, there were such lovely people in that band. I mean, but to get through Twist and Shout without them getting lost, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't mean to disappear. <laughs> they were fine, but I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was just funny to be playing with a group with, Keith Copeland, and then you caught him doing these wedding things. Well, let me say what I found from playing in that wedding band was we had a lot of gigs. It's, e it's easy to do music like that and make more money than you can make unless you're a huge star playing creative music. But at the end of a day playing that, I would get home and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be fired up to write new music and do creative things. Something was missing. It, it, to me, it, it actually had negative effect of, on musical creativity, doing that stuff so much. But, but in fairness, let me say that that's not true for everybody. There's some people where I just want my hands on my instrument all the time, right? So for me, I found, huh, that this doesn't work. So after a year, I, I, you know, I stopped doing that. Um, but I have lots of other instruments. I mean, marine biology was still interesting. I, was, I remember I, I went to a conference, a technical conference on rainforest uh, biodiversity and rainforest conservation. I was very interested in artificial intelligence and expert systems. I was reading all this stuff about this. I go to New York library on 42nd street. I couldn't afford to buy these books, but I would be sitting there reading this stuff, you know. So I'm kind of doing all these things in parallel. So, so I had a parallel career for a little while, which, which was insane. By the way, I was also doing I was on a track team, I was doing athletic competition, and one of my runner friends was dating some guy who had left his job on Wall Street. Uh, and she wanted me to come over and meet him. So I went over and this guy had a bookshelf filled with artificial intelligence books. These kind of books I was reading in New York Public Library. And all I knew that he's some trader on Wall Street. So what are you doing with this? It turns out he had been in that field and then he had left to make millions and millions of dollars on Wall Street. And I got in a conversation with him, 
this is just some, as far as he knew, this is just some guy he had heard play music at, mm -hmm. at Tuesdays who he knew what went running with his girlfriend. So one thing lets another, we're in this conversation. He said, man, you know a lot about this stuff. You should get a job in this field. I said, no, no, I'm doing music full time. I'm not looking for another job, you know, and plus I don't have a degree. I never he said, no, this is a very unusual field. You, you could do this. Well, the problem for me in those days is everyone takes it granted now. I couldn't do any of, I couldn't even play around with this stuff because I didn't have a computer. I mean, people oh. didn't have laptops and home computers then, right? This is a long time ago. So, so the idea to be able to get my hands on the computers and try some of the stuff I was reading about was sort of intriguing. So as we were leaving, he said, you know, I have a friend who's just starting an artificial intelligence lab. You should contact him. Well, this is too long a story, but it ended up, he had me come to the lab and right before I came, they, they asked me to give a presentation on my area of expertise. And you're like, I've never done this before. <laughs> right. Well, well, the interesting thing was I had been reading about expert systems and I had been thinking about how you could model certain things about jazz improvisation and get an expert system to simulate what a human was doing. And, and in that process, it's not that you want the computer to make the music, but in the process, you would figure out more details about things that humans do that they're not consciously aware of. Mm -hmm. and, and some of this is, sounds like really mundane stuff, like how you finger a passage on guitar when you don't know where it's gonna go to. You see, when you play classical music on guitar, you're figuring, all the fingering is worked out. But when you play jazz, you, there are many choices of fingering and you have to do it on the fly. So this sounds like such a trivial mundane thing, but actually, try to get a computer to do it. That's not easy. Mm -hmm. Well, that means you have to understand more about how a human is doing it. And so this whole thing about how this field actually revealed more about what the humans are doing was very interesting. So I went to this lab, gave a talk all about how you would model this stuff, which was completely theoretical, as I was very candid about. I've never gotten my hands on a computer to do this, but here's how you'd use this kind of expert system architecture to do so-and-so. And I thought people were gonna be completely bored and like, what, 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 what are you doing? Well, wow, they were fascinated and they were, and one of the guys was saying, well, that's interesting because that reminds me in karate, you know, he's like a black belt of karate. When I do this in karate, and then someone else said, well, that's interesting because, you know, in my study about, of neuropsychology, the time it takes the afferent nerve to transmit to the afferent, you know, like everybody had this super- Every ha Everyone had that, that side passion that they could connect to it. And, and so I ended up, many people in the music world never knew this, but for a bunch of years, I was, I was doing that like I had two full-time jobs. Okay, this, is, this has gone far from your question. It's okay, keep going. But, but the <laughs> only thing I knew in the late 80s, as I was doing all these other things, I mean, I could have become a triathlon coach, I could have become a, right. But the only thing I knew was that I never wanted to teach music. That was the only thing that was clear to me because I had this image of teaching music like kids sitting there really bored and, and you're making this thing that's magical to you into this like mundane, you know. So it was clear I never wanted to do that. Well, you already know, because we've talked about it, that the drummer in my group was Keith Copeland. Mm -hmm. And Keith Copeland was such a beautiful cat. You know, he died a few years ago. Like the most supportive, unbelievable. You know, he played with all these legendary groups, but he was really into our quartet. 
And he mm -hmm. was always finding sometimes kind of behind the scenes, just supportive things he could do, things to encourage, you know, things to, to make it happen, things to support us. And he never asked me for anything. And one day he said, Rory-san, this is a little, <laughs> Rory-san, I'm going to Japan with Hank Jones. And uh, I've got, a, I'm teaching a class at this university and it's a class in rhythm and I need somebody to sub for me. And you're doing all these crazy odd meter and all, all these interesting rhythmic things in this group. I know you'd be great at this. Would you please fill in for me? And he told me what the date was. Well, you can see my dilemma. It's like, yeah. On the one hand, it's like, oh my God, I never want to teach. On the other, I, I couldn't turn Keith down. This guy was, so I said, sure, Keith, I'll do it. Well, one, a single class, and, and this was an amazing class, by the way, a single class of filling in for Keith completely rocked my world about teaching. Really? I, I was expecting some boring people working at Interact. Like, he was like, I, you know, an amazing, well, I, I, I could remember probably some of the continents and what instrument people played from, but you know, this amazing person from New Zealand, this killing person from Germany, you know, they're all from all over the world. And I would show people things and do, we do exercises and they had this feedback that was like very energizing. And I remember when the, when the class was over, I'm walking down the street and all these musical ideas are popping in my head. And I sort of said like, oh, this teaching thing isn't so bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It sparked something that you weren't expecting. Right. I, and I went home and I composed a piece of music. I mean, it was like, wow, it was, I thought it was going to be like playing in a wedding band and kill your, your groove. And it was the opposite. It was like, especially with that group of students, it was like energizing. So for a couple of years, two or three years, every time Keith needed someone to subject for him, which was more and more often because he was going on the road a lot. I, I would be the sub. And so I got to know all the students and, you know, teach the class. And, and then in 1992, Keith had been, <laughs> Keith was in a, a ball of energy. He was unbelievable. He was teaching in, I think it was four different universities at once. Oh my Lord. Know, doing the crazy adjunct New York thing. He's playing gigs with people. He's racing up to Boston. He's driving home. He's sleeping on the floor of his office at Rutgers. I mean, it was, it was just nuts. You know, one of my first drum teachers at the new school did that. Um, he, he would teach in somewhere. It was like, I think he taught at purchase. So that's what an hour into Jersey or something like that. Then yeah. he was somewhere in like Connecticut and then the new school. And then he, he'd have a gig at night and I'm like, geez, I, I do a podcast and go to sleep at 11 o'clock and I wake up and I'm exhausted. I don't know how <laughs> there's a, it's a whole, it's a different breed of person who just has that like insane not insane in a bad way, but like it, yeah. like intense energy to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what happened with Keith is one of the Hochschulers, I'm not pronouncing it right, I don't have great German, but one of the German, these, you know, esteemed very old schools, they, they started incorporating jazz. They have been like classical conservatories and they made an offer, as he said, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. I mean, they made him an offer, forget about all the health benefits and re and pension, all this stuff. I mean, the salary he paid was like more than, like much more than all the other colleges all combined. Mm -hmm. And it was gonna give him a chance actually to tour around Europe. You know, they weren't very rigid. He could juggle his time. In fact, being Keith, he ended up teaching at two different Hochschulen, which I never met anyone else who did that, you know. Um, and so at that point, the, the um, director, the, the 
person who became the dean of the jazz department, fantastic guy, Martin Mueller, he retired after 30 years. He asked me to teach, to take over the rhythm classes and actually kind of structure the whole rhythm curriculum. And, you know, at, at that point, it wasn't like a whole structured thing. It was just kind of these crazy classes. Jimmy Cobb taught one of them and people would come in and Jimmy Cobb was just playing the drums. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's cool. People got to play along with Jimmy Cobb, but, you know, it wasn't like really a curriculum. Yeah. Um, and I just want to give credit to Martin Mueller because I was on some downbeat polls and I was getting four star reviews, you know, and I was playing clubs, but I, you know, New York City, I wasn't the most famous cat they could have gotten for that. And, but Martin, he, he was a different guy. I mean, he, anyway, thank you, Martin. I mean, he asked me to do that. And so I, I did it for a whole bunch of years. It was great. And, and now I've already eaten up all your time and we didn't even get to lots of stuff, but, but at least you got the early part of how I got into it. This is all just answering your first question, right? Yeah. Can I ask you one more? Do you have time for one more? Sure. Because I I just, I, I need to, there's one thing that I'm so curious about, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to keep you too long because no, no, I know no. you're a busy man. Here's, here's something that I need to know if it's true or not. You know, you talked about your other passions here. This will, this will tie it together. Talk about your other passions and working at school. One of your passions, which was immediately obvious, was that you love athletic things because I remember you coming in, you you had like these bright yellow running sneakers and like all of the, like the, the honeycomb, whatever shirt and all that stuff. I don't know anything about it. Is it true? This is a rumor I heard that you run from the bottom of Manhattan. Well, I guess not now because of Corona, but from the bottom of Manhattan, from one of the bridges up to school every day when we were teaching, when you were teaching in person at the new school. It's very interesting to hear how the rumor has transmuted <laughs> through the years. So, so I used to live in Rockland County, which mm -hmm. is on the other side of the Hudson River, north of New Jersey. And I had a place I could park in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I would park my car and I would run through New Jersey over the George Washington Bridge. And then sometimes I'd be lazy and take the A train down to 14th Street. But other times I would run along the west side from 181st Street down to New School. And, and, and I, I actually had a little locker and I would have a change of clothes. And so, you know, do my thing and then I would teach classes. Um, and I, I mean, I was very quiet about it. It's about 11 and a half miles each way. I would usually only run one direction and then maybe I would take the A train back and then just a couple miles the other way. So I'd get, 13 miles or so in every day when I taught in new school. There was a point where there was a transit strike, and that was interesting, going by foot all the way in both directions, but I didn't usually do that. So I was very quiet about this, but one day, I think I got to school, and I was just going to my locker to grab some clothes, and some students said something like, what's going on? What are you doing? It looks like you're sweating a little bit. I said, no, I just ran a little bit. I said, well, what do you mean? Where'd you run? So anyway, this, this guy was very inquisitive. So he pulled it out of me that I just run from New Jersey. So like a virus in a good way, this, this uh, spread. So all of a sudden, all these students are like, man, this guy's crazy. He runs, you know. Now, the other thing that was funny is somebody, I never talked about the artificial intelligence stuff. And, and by the way, I became somewhat it's significant in that field. There's a textbook that people still use that I wrote on uh, the design of virtual environments. I taught graduate classes at NYU in, in uh, virtual environments, you know, kind of what people call virtual reality today. So um, 
but somebody somehow heard something about artificial intelligence. And I don't know, maybe they heard AI. I don't know, somehow they got this confused. So that's a little while that the rumor was that I was in the CIA. Somehow intelligence, they thought I was in some intelligence network. <laughs> that sounds like something that a bunch of new school students would be sitting on the fifth floor in those couches going like, it's like nine o'clock at night with a Chipotle bag going, did you hear Rory Stewart works for the CIA? You know, like blasted out of their ass, just high as hell. I, w- I think big, I, I have to say it's a big lie. I've never worked for the CIA. I've <laughs> But, I, I think but, I heard the running thing from Richard Bukas. Was that's where I heard the running thing was I think I think it was Bukas or geez, who was it? It was it was a teacher. Yeah. It was probably Bukas, because I think Bukas was talking about, you know, he does all the swimming and all that. Yeah. And he's like, Yeah, man, you know, uh Rory Stewart, you know, he's got me beat. He's 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 running from like from like, you know, from the bridge all the way to school every day. Which is which when I heard that was, you know, even, you know, I, I didn't know if there was any like merit to it, but I mean, when everyone does like, you know, when everyone does their Rory Stewart impression, it's always like, like kind of like jogging a little bit. <laughs> it's like, there's like two things. It's one thing. It's, it's jogging a little bit. Right. And then when, when you play a rhythm, you just hit yourself as hard as possible. And that was the one thing. And now every time when I play, like if I'm, if I'm trying to like figure out a rhythm and I'm tapping on my like chest like that yeah. and I'm like kind of doing it light I always do it like this because my first thing is like I remember you in class coming yeah. in running pounding, in pounding it out exactly so, but but here's a so so to break the stereotypes I don't think these stereotypes are strong now but back when I started playing the stereotype of jazz musicians you know was just like I mean it was just all booze cigarettes and and heroin mm-hmm. I mean you know it was crazy not exactly the most healthy lifestyle Right. So, so back when I went on the road with Jack McDuff, right away, you could see that I wasn't going to be the typical guy because after I won't go into all the details about what kind of carousing they were doing, after a lot of carousing, you know, they're sleeping in and I'm waking up and running 10 miles along the railroad tracks in Gary, Indiana, trying to find a place to run and the railroad tracks were fine. So I was into it even back then. Um, but here, but to break the stereotype, I'm not the only one who's crazy. Now, why do I say that? By the most bizarre thing, I, I was on a triathlon team and one of my teammates said, you know, this, this was a guy who worked in the, like uh, Wall Street, like I don't know, venture capital or finance things. He said, hey Rory, listen, I'm in a jam because I was gonna teach a university class in running uh, and my, my job just changed and I can't do it. Would you be interested? So I said, yeah, for sure. Because just like I said about the stuff I was reading at the public library, I was always very interested in exercise, physiology and nutrition, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. So I said, I would love to. So he gets me in touch with the person who's like in charge of this would been, you know, asking him to teach a class. Well, it turns out it was in new school. It was in Lang. Oh, really? I so just, just, com- just complete coincidence. Complete coincidence. So I think it was something like eight and a half years, I taught a running class in Lang. Okay? You're well, all over the place. You're, you're, you're doing one thing from one thing to another. Yeah, but, but here's, who cares about me? Here's the funny thing. Talking about breaking stereotypes, it, students from all over the university would take this class. But who were the best runners we ever had? Well... Cat who did a, an Ironman his senior year as a jazz major at the school. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
a woman who was a trumpet player from Switzerland who was running 150 miles a week as she as she did all her musical studies. I mean, so it's the musicians. Just, just by coincidence, some of the best runners who ever came to the class were, were you know, some of the best athletes were jazz students. That's that's and, shocking to me, genuinely. And and by the way, I mentioned Calvin Hill, the bass player who played in my group in the 80s. Mm-hmm. When I first connected with Calvin, we were both at a jam session and he was wearing a cap that said Honolulu Marathon. And I had never met any other musicians, jazz musicians who ran marathons. So mm-hmm. I started talking. So, for, you know, he and I used to go training in Central Park together. So one day we're out training in Central Park and I hear someone scream, hey, Rory, Calvin. I look and there's Billy Harper. Billy Harper at one point got into running. And, and as Billy Harper is known to do, he doesn't do things halfway. So yeah. he went from, I believe, basically not running <laughs> to running. A, the opposite a, of cold turkey. Just, I guess, can you start something cold turkey? I guess I, that's I, what it would be. I think he told me he was running 17 miles a day. <laughs> from from nothing? <laughs> so at that particular point, when, when Billy runs past us, he's like, man, Rory and Calvin, you know, like, wow, you guys are running fast, you know? And, but then there's Billy and he's, he's looking like an Olympic athlete because he's training so intensely. Mm-hmm. So this is a lot of years ago, you know? So anyway, it turns out, and by the way, among drummers, I don't know if you know John Riley. Oh, absolutely. Teaches sure. at Manhattan School of Music, right? Yeah, and, and he used to teach at New School and, and he started teaching in Manhattan and, and he started teaching a rhythm class. So now he's the rhythm class teacher in Manhattan. Oh. Well, he's a heck of a good athlete. Wow, he's a, a very good cyclist. Uh, and, but a solid runner. I, I did a workshop with him where we were running up these mountains in Italy, and so so it's interesting. There there are some pretty good uh, some pretty good jazz musician athletes out there. Are there many jazz musician uh, art, art artificial intelligence type people? That I have to say I haven't run into as much. But if you've ever used a product called Audacity, absolutely. Yeah, the, one of the two guys who created that is a brilliant computer scientist who teaches at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, and he's an excellent trumpet player. Uh, I mean, he's not super famous as a trumpet mm-hmm. player, but he's a badass. He, Roger Dannenberg is his name. So there, I mean, and, and by the way, Steve Coleman, when I, when I first got in Steve Coleman's band uh, and we were going to play and we were in the, we were, on a bus going to a festival, Saalfelden Festival in the Austrian Alps. And he's sitting across from me on the bus. And I, and I cracked up because he had these three books. One of them was about African music, which I was also into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second was a, about uh, the music of Bartok and Kodaly and the Fibonacci series, which was some stuff. Yes. Is that the Fibonacci series, is that the, is that, is that the golden rule? It's right. It relates to the golden rule. Like if you take sequential numbers and divide them, you get the golden mean. Yeah. And yeah. Exactly. So, and, and the third book he had is programming your Commodore 64. <laughs> now this is how long ago it was. Steve was figuring out how to program his own computer. And he was explaining, he wanted to be able to play Charlie Parker style lines and have the computer program alter them by Fibonacci relationships and play them back so he could hear what it would sound like. Well, I think what happened, I, I believe that after a while, Steve pulled away from the programming himself, but I think he's, I believe I've heard he's done some stuff with someone from MIT 
who's who's a pretty heavy AI person. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely some some jazz musicians who are into this stuff. And, yeah. and by the way, I've had uh, former students graduated from new school jazz, complete jazz studies, taught themselves programming, started software companies, very successful. Mm -hmm. so, it, so for some people, the 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 cognitive things that make them great musicians also make them great at these other things. I, I mean, I, I kind of, I would love to be known as, you know, a guy who hosts a podcast, but can also play music, you know? So, I, I mean, it's definitely not, uh, I, you know, I'm not at the intelligence level of someone who can sit down and write words into a computer. And the next thing you know, you have an app, but it's, it, I, I like those people who are, who are, you know, multi-skilled. Yeah, I don't know if I would exactly say intelligence is a funny word. Like there are different kinds of intelligence, mm -hmm. right? But but anyways, it's interesting because like in a, I think you were in a rhythm class when I was going to show something and I said, how many people loved high school math? And it's very interesting because- <laughs> I remember that. Because there's some people are like, yeah, some fin someone finally asked me, I loved high school math. And there are other people like, oh my God, I, I went to music school, so I never have to deal with this, you know, right. So, so it's interesting. It's, it's not, it's, it's just different cognitive styles. And, you know, even different people with different kinds of styles can happen to also become, all become great musicians. Mm -hmm. Are you keeping up at all with the AI that like Elon Musk is working on with the, the pigs and the chip in the head? Are you keeping up with that? A, a little bit. Yeah. Little bit. Do, you have, do you have any particular thoughts? Cause I'm interested. I know nothing about it, but whenever I hear him talk, I'm always really interested. And I don't, do you have any opinions on stuff like that? Uh, you know, because you know a lot more about this than I do. Well, I'll, I'll mention one thing that's sort of interesting. People for a bunch of years have been predicting the singularity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you, I can, I, for your listeners, you might know what singularity is. I can mention this quickly for your listeners. And um, often I hear this forecasted for some time around 2050. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a long time. I hope I'm still alive, but I'm not going to be a spring chicken. I, don't, I probably won't even be running across the bridge from New Jersey at that point. Are you, uh, you're, are you referring to basically when we are completely connected to the internet and have infinite information? Is that what you're talking about? Well, the particular thing about singularity, there, there's some different variations on it, but the particular thing is the moment when, which it's not, this is a, a matter of opinion. Everyone doesn't agree it's ever going to happen, but if you see the rate at which artificial intelligence functions are, are progressing and, and you know, processing speed, memory, but also algorithmic things, neural nets, all of these things are progressing where if you project them out, there's a point that some people argue they're gonna become as intelligent as humans. Mm -hmm. Now that still seems super distant in the future to me. Uh, because there's certain things that, that a four-year-old kid takes for granted that are incredibly difficult to program for a computer. Interestingly, things that we think represent a lot of intelligence, like someone who's a chess grandmaster, well, computers can already kick butt on that, you know. Or it's like the computers who can play people in Jeopardy. Yeah, right. But, but, but like for a kid to crawl up a flight of stairs or something, that's some difficult, you know. So some of the things that, that we take for granted are not that easy. Um, but, but the idea about this is if there's a moment when computers become as intelligent as humans, that's only seconds before computers become much more intelligent. Because for example, computers, 
you know, think, think about like autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. So right now I would rather have a human drive me than a, than a driverless car, mm -hmm. but every driverless car in the world could communicate with each other. And so anytime there's any data that shows them, oh, when, when the sun hits this way, you know, and, and somebody steps up from the street, you know, immediately they have access to millions of these examples. So, so just like computers understanding respiratory disease, where they, where they could have more examples than a, a human doctor would ever see in their whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. You know, th this idea is that the computers are gonna quickly far surpass humans in intelligence. What do you think about this, about the autonomous cars though? I have one reservation about the, about not that it's possible or valid because it's going to happen, but and I have an emotional and probably just because I don't know things, it's probably unfounded in, 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 in actual evidence, but I think it's so cool and I would do it. I just wonder if every car is connected, the possibility that someone can con find a way to control that and then the, you could kill off an entire population of the country by making all the cars crash at one time. Is if, that something if, that concerns you? If they get hacked, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. And by the way, this is a whole thing with our recent election. People have to be careful to not blindly put, you know, voter registration things all, all like with some central server where someone hacks mm -hmm. that and, and all the stuff is, you know, is screwed. Uh, no, no, definitely. There are, there are a lot of things like that that are deeply troubling. But, but the thing that people... Some people love it and some people are terrified about this idea about singularity because once the computers are, you know, the rate at which they're, you know, which if, if they ever progress to that point and they continue progressing at that rate, quickly we're like, to them, like um, a nuisance. Like an ants or something. Like an ant. I mean, an ant's fine, but you don't expect you're going to have a conversation with an ant. It seems to have a sort of a limited you know, it's, it's great at its little limited thing. So the idea is what, you know, what use are the computers going to have for the humans? So do you think, do you think there is a future where computers basically run the planet? I in terms of they have their own, they're completely sentient and we are that ant to them. Do you, you see that as being something that's totally viable? I have no idea. And it's not a future I'm looking forward to. <laughs> well, yeah. let's. You know, there's. I guess there's one thing we can all hope. Let's hope we're all gone before that happens, which most likely it will. I mean, I, I, there's many things that I would like to see, but I don't think that's one thing. I'd love to see. I'd again, I'd love to see completely autonomous, you know, cars, and because it would make everything more efficient. You get place fa places faster if that's functional. I I think it would be really interesting to see the whole, you know, neural net brain chip. I'm again, that's another if I'm a little iffy on, you know, you have a problem with it. Now you got to go to the hospital, and get get it removed. But right. I'm always I'm really always really interested in that. Again, it's all emotional. I have no there's no logical part of me that's saying, oh, because of this reason, it's cool. It's mostly just I'm watching, you know, Elon Musk on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, that sounds cool. You know? Yeah. A, a really I, interesting thing to do, though, is to go back in time and hear what people's predictions of the future were. Like 1984. Right. I mean, I mean, like, like back, back, back. I mean, it's very interesting. For example, uh, what was it? I, so I used to know some of these really well. When movies first came out, I think this might have even been silent movies. People, you know, educators thought, oh, my God, the whole education system is going to go away. Why would anybody go to school when they can watch a movie? Mm -hmm. 
well, it looks like university. So, so you know, there are yeah. many of these things. Um, I, I guess something that interests me about a lot of these still, all these years later, is what we learn about ourselves as people in the process of doing all this technology stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, things it reveals to us. But the other thing is it seems clear to me that things are progressing in ways that are, there's, there's no, uh, I, I'm, it's funny you even use the word conspiracy now when you have almost half the people in the US that, are, that think there's a, a basement in a pizza parlor that, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? But uh, it's not a conspiratorial thing where people are planning ahead and shaping what happens technology-wise. It's very interesting. It's, uh, to me, it's almost like sort of this Darwinian thing. Um, so I remember, uh, just quickly, I, I could say, I remember when a friend of mine showed me email. So this mm -hmm. is pretty cool. We just send this back and forth to my friend in Norway. It was like mid-90s? Uh, this was late 80s. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. This was 19, maybe 1988, give or take. And, and so show me emails. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. I remember when my friend, my office mate at artificial intelligence lab, remember I'm, I'm composing tunes. I'm playing at clubs at night. I'm still actually, I would show up at this lab and do things there in person. It wasn't just on a home computer. My office mate who was actually a big jazz fan, it turned out. Uh, but he showed me this interesting thing. I, I'm trying to remember if it was Alta Vista, I don't remember the name of, um, I forget actually the name of the, but it, it was um, this thing that let you go on something called the World Wide Web. <laughs> and, and it was something, you know, hackers, you know, not hackers, but like programmers were using it, you know, they were posting little pieces of code. It was all very techy. And um, they said, but look at how cool this is. You just type in this address and this person can put up this stuff, you know, like in Hong Kong and, and you can see the code. You know, and, and I remember, so wow, huh, that, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I remember when, uh, well, this is like one of these old guys talking about when they first had horses and buggies and then there were the first- The auto engines. Trips. Yeah, but uh, anyways, search engines, there's a bunch of this stuff. You know, when somebody showed me Amazon, so well, it's a cool idea. I mean, it was just selling books, right? It's a cool idea, but how, how can they sell the book so cheap? Well, how they sold the book so cheap is they lost money. So, so we used to laugh at Amazon. Like, I mean, you can get some idiots who are going to invest in this company, but if they're always selling books, losing money, well, you know, I, I'm fine to buy a book from them because you can get it cheaper, but it's not a serious business. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Missed it on that one. <laughs> there's some of those, there's just some of those people that just like, you look at what they're doing and you go, what the hell is going on? And there's just some people just have this vision that I know I don't have it, but there's just this vision that they can just see if I just do this one thing that I'm going to be at this part that, you know, I'm going to have, there's going to be a whole new term, you know, there's going to be yeah. a whole new part of society. That's just like, Oh yeah, you order from Amazon. You know, that's cool. That is some of the coolest stuff to me. But, but by the way, the flip side is also true. You know, if you had told me in 1969 that there was going to be this tremendous, this tremendous long stretch of years where not only were humans not walking on Mars, no, nobody even went back to the moon. Like, what do you mean? Did, did society completely collapse? What happened? 
Mm-hmm. Right? You know, so, so, yeah. so I'm just making the point that, it, that it's surprisingly not that easy to foresee what's going to happen. Yeah, there's, it's, it really is. It's, I have no idea, especially when it comes to the future of, I mean, now it seems like the internet, if it didn't already, is really going to rule everything, especially now that, you know, businesses are getting used to the idea that their people can, you know, their employees can be productive from their houses. Yeah. And so the only thing I see in my my prediction of the future is that basically everything is going to be on the internet. It, 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 we thought it was already, but now it's just, you know, you're going to work online, you're going to do everything you do online, you're going to watch all your content online. If TV goes out, you know, they're going to start all the major news networks are, you know, are streaming all their stuff online. Yeah. That's that's my only p- prediction of the future. I mean, when it comes to the actual not obvious stuff, I have no clue. But an interesting thing for you to, whether it's predict or try to try to guess, is how things are going to go in the whole sort of musical ecosphere. Yeah. And, and this is a whole other thing we don't have to get deep into because I'm sure everybody listening is quite aware of this. But, it, you know, it's a bizarre world. I mean, I have boxes of CDs in mm-hmm. my storage room. I mean, for, for years, for years, people buying CDs like crazy. Then mm-hmm. there's the point when, um, you know, my students at workshops are buying CDs, but otherwise I'm not getting their orders. And then there's a point where people are looking at them like, what's that? Like, oh, I don't have anything you could stick that into, you know? So, but but CDs, I mean, that that's just a trivial thing. That's like, LPs, you know, cassettes, it's like the whole, but if, if people doing creative music, if, if you can't make money by recording it and sharing it with people, I'm not talking about getting rich, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about paying your bills. Right, I mean, because if, if it's gotta be only a, a, a little part-time hobby for everybody, uh, and I'm speaking as someone who's done a lot of things at once. You know, there was, by the way, I ended up getting a master's degree in computer science along the way. Many Boy, there are so many things I had no yeah. clue about but, you. But, but but in the same year that I did my, I, I did an Ironman triathlon. I completed the the uh, the thesis for my master's degree. I mean, you know, it was like this. I, I was teaching a lot of classes in school. I was teaching. You know, I said all of these things at once. So, so even speaking of someone who's, who's done a lot of stuff at once, there's a reason I stopped doing the AI stuff. Because at some point I, I realized, you know, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter, John Coltrane, Miles Dave, you know, Jack DeJanette, Westman, all these people, there's a certain thing about I'm not saying everybody has to spend all their time doing music, not at all. It's, I think it's a completely honorable thing whether you graduate with a, a degree in philosophy from Harvard and become an investment banker or you, or you graduate with a degree from music, from new school uh, and become a, a lawyer as one of my students. Did. You know, it, it's, that's completely fine. But I think there's a thing that to really advance things artistically to this highest level, it just takes a certain amount of time and focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a thing that happened with me. I said, okay, life, you don't have an, an unlimited number of years. And, and at some point, 
you know, I had had these wonderful experiences doing other things, but I realized there was a lot that I still wanted to do musically and got to really, got to really focus for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm just thinking about someone who's, sorry to use the word generation, but someone, you know, <laughs> someone who's like roughly your age. Yeah. And if I remember myself at that age, the, the future is this unknown thing. You don't know what path you're going to take, but if you want to, if some people in that position want to become the next John Coltrane or the next Jack DeJunette or the, you know, or the next Art Taylor, whatever it is, I mean, it, there's a value to, to some people in the community being able to really, really put all their energy into reaching the highest level with that. And it just concerns me well, if, if every time they make a recording, they're losing money on the recording, mm-hmm. okay? You know, so, you know, the, the people who, you know, Verizon is making plenty of money selling you Fios. They're mm-hmm. making money every month. But when someone videotapes your conference on their cell phone and puts it on YouTube, YouTube's making plenty of money, you mm-hmm. know? Well, the artists, no. So, yeah. so I'm not begrudging the other people making money. And there, and there are lots of things that are beautiful about being able to see little clips from cell phones of, of people's concerts. It's, you know, it's great. And, and by the way, things that we take for granted now, the idea that you can Google something, you know, if you, yeah. if you had told the president of the United States 50 years ago, we're, good, we're gonna give you this special thing. And it's like the majority of the knowledge from the world is on this little thing you're gonna carry in your pocket. And you can access it. This mm-hmm. is, you, know, you couldn't have paid enough million, millions of dollars. So it's it's not to it's not to um, sell short any of these things. But it's only a concern how in the in this ecosphere, how do the people who want to really get to this most exalted level musically to to move things on artistically, you know, how is the system sustaining that? If the system doesn't sustain that, then, then you know things are not looking so bright in that area. And remember, nobody's walked on the moon for a long time, so there are things where the future looked really bright and then it didn't pan out. So yeah. that's the only thing that moves me. I think the thing, I think music will be around forever. It's just we just don't, you know, music in a lot of terms is subjective. We think of music as being you you know at one time it was you bought a record then it was you bought a cd like you said then as you bought a tape then you stream it so it's the the process of listening music is changing right now because of the fact that these clubs are closing because you can't go out and play in in you know many states i mean if it's we're just at this pinnacle that it really is it's up in the air of whether it'll always yeah. be there i i truly believe music will always be there it's just what's it going to look like or what's it going to what's it going to yeah, sound well, like I, 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 yeah, I have no doubt there'll be musicians, but I'm, I'm particularly talking about, you know, musically reach, you know, sort of musical evolution, like really yeah. reaching things, reaching things where, in 20 years, if if you go to a club, you're hearing things and thinking, man, 20 years ago, if they had put me into a time machine, my jaw would have dropped. Like, wow, this is incredible music that was never heard 20 years ago. That I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean um, to be to be and- to be perfectly honest about it, like the part of the reason I do this podcast, and I've said this in other episodes, 
I've said this in multiple episodes, is because I was unsure. I got, you know, I, I was a drummer and I produced, you know, I produced music, but it was like, I wanted something that I felt worked specifically for the climate that I'm in right now, because in March, you know, everyone thought it was going to be done in, you know, a couple months and then that happened. And now we don't know, you know, I guess we'll, we'll have to see next yeah. year once Biden comes in and, and, and what that's going to be like. And hopefully it's going to be better in terms of our, our reaction and our response to the, the coronavirus. And hopefully things will go back to normal. But even if they go back to somewhat normal, things are going to be different. And my the whole thing was I want to figure out, you know, bringing my other passion, which is I love I love talking, I guess, not public speaking, but I like I like being on camera and, and, and interviewing and all that kind of stuff. And that was coronavirus with all the negatives it had it really inspired me to try something new that i specifically thought would work in this climate and now and, once- and actually not not to uh not not to make you feel like i'm being too overly complimentary but but this kind of fits in what you're doing because this is a step in creating the ecosphere that's supportive of the music right because if you think what you're doing i'm not paying you to interview me <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and you're and you're spreading the word about. I, I heard the thing you do with the mirrors. If you're spreading the word about different musicians, so more people become aware of them. Yeah, so- that's that's a big a passion of mine, and I'm I'm trying to have people of all. That's why I really appreciate the fact that you're so you have so many different interests because there are a lot of things that I'm interested in that I want to hear about people who actually know what they're talking about and. Hopefully, in the future, once with the, I don't like to say if I'm always I always like to say when you know when there's a a loyal fan base for the show. I have you know a couple people. Ian Miller, who always watches the show, he's this guy, he's a guy from Scotland, stays up to like one in the morning to watch the show. Sometimes over in Scotland. Hey Ian. Once there's a whole yeah, he commented at the beginning of the show. I hope he's still there. Ian Miller, uh, Carl Taylor. But once that audience grows, I would love to, you know I love the idea of being able to give back in a way you can bring on people and, and show you know, what's still going on in a, in a right now, you know, this is live. It's, this is exactly what's going on. There's no, there's no bull. It's just, this is what's going on. This is what people are working on. And that's, that's a, that's a passion of mine, but Rory, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it so much. I want to, once, once things start to change a little bit, if, if you have some time, I'd love to do this again and see what, you know, what we, what the things we've said today have held up and what haven't in terms of, you know, or, or to see it. I, I had a, a bunch of topics that have nothing to do with me that I thought would be very fun to discuss. We could we could discuss them some other time if you want. Let's uh, that, let's absolutely do that. And, and Honest, way, I'm going to only do one really obnoxious thing. Yeah, but give me uh, give me give me all your plugs. So, in the spirit of things that that have to find some way for people to find out about them in the world today. Here are six volumes of the rhythm book. Gorgeous. And the, the rhythm book um, goes, it goes from basic stuff to really advanced stuff. There are more than 2000 MP3s that are free online if you buy the books, supporting examples. And, and you as someone who's taken a rhythm class with me, you know, this was pretty crazy that I wrote these books. If you if you found, you saw the amount of effort that went into it in the number of years, mm-hmm. but I feel like somebody who didn't, whether it was supplemental to something like being in a, in a jazz program or, you know, a music program at a school, or even somebody someplace in the world who can't afford to be one in one, I, I feel that rhythmically, 
if someone steps through these books, by the time they're done, they, they can be at the highest level musically of rhythm. I mean, like someone where you're gonna, everyone's gonna be talking about you because you know, you've, you've reached this level. Yeah, I mean, I, ju- I just missed the books when I got out of your rhythm class. When, when did they come out? What was that, like about two years ago, a year ago? Yeah, it was pretty recently. Yeah. I, the first two came out before the others. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had just missed it, I think, when I got out of my class. But I had, what is a semester? Uh, three months, something like that? Three and a half months? From the beginning of, and I'm assuming just a lot of the, I'm assuming a lot of the material that I learned is also in the books from that three months, I felt myself in terms of being able to understand polyrhythms, especially when you'd come into the class and you would say, you'd have us all sing a rhythm immediately. My process from that, and I learned it from filling out that sheet you gave us just in that three and a half months was astonishing, especially cause I've had rhythm classes before and, 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 and done a lot of other studying where I didn't feel that I didn't feel that like push forward. And so if, you know, if that three and a half months in a, in a class can do that for me, I just, I want I really want, I'm going to go through your rhythm book sometime. I think once I'm done with college, cause I really want to sure. get and, deeper and, into it. And probably they, you know, the, the best way to do is it, probably a time where you've got a little bit of time for them, but mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're like many examples. There are things where you can hear people do things. So I would play an example in class, but there's not that much time in class. This, this has got like many in, in all kinds of style of music, by the way, it's not just jazz, you yeah. know, it's about, things in classical and hip hop. I mean, it's the whole range, heavy metal, you know, all kinds of stylistic things, Brazilian, Afro-Cuban. So and where, where can people buy the books? Oh, now, now we're really <laughs> selling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you, got, you got to, or, you know, we're, we're, we're everyone, you know, we yeah. want to give people good information. We want to let you know what you're up to. Sure. TheRhythmBooks.com. TheRhythmBooks.com. Yep. Just continues. T-H-E RhythmBooks.com. I'll link to it in the description once this is up. For, you know, fully that can add it to it. But yeah. Rory, thank you so much. You've been, you've made my job here absolutely so easy. Just have it. I, I, I love being able to really talk to you in depth because I, after having some classes with you and, you know, you only get an hour and, you know, there's, you know, there's a bunch of other people. I really appreciate being able to talk to in depth, talk to you in depth about all the things we did and all the stuff I didn't honestly know about you. So I appreciate it tremendously. And, and, uh, and, it, and someday we do want to, only talk about things that aren't about me, but like some of the amazing places I've seen or some of the great musicians that I've played with, some, some incredible people, like I mentioned, Dave Kramer, but mm-hmm. there's some other folks like that that are worth people finding out about who aren't necessarily there on the cover of Downbeat. So Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Rory. Thank you to everyone who listened. Uh, if you want to check this out, if you're listening on iTunes right now, you can check this podcast out on YouTube. If you were listening live on YouTube, you can check out the audio version on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening or watching and have a good night. Wow. 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 Wow.